0: Welcome to this eHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the Program. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Krakauer, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And our topic is Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis, specifically about addressing provider and patient barriers to PrEP. eHIV Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Veve Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include summarize the priority populations where PrEP implementation is likely to have the greatest impact, identify how to help at-risk patients with limited awareness of PrEP make informed decisions about accepting PrEP, and describe an unbiased approach to prescribing decisions about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. Dr. Krakauer has disclosed that he has performed contract research for Gilead Sciences Incorporated. He has further indicated that there will be references to the unapproved use of intermittent tenofovir emtricitabine for PrEP. Dr. Krakauer, thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. We know that PrEP works. We know it's safe, and we know that PrEP is significantly underused in at-risk populations. In your recent newsletter issue, Doctor, you described the recent research into addressing provider and patient barriers to engagement in PrEP. Today, I'd like to discuss how that new information might impact clinical practice. So, let me ask you to start us out, if you would please, Dr. Krakauer, with a patient presentation.
1: Sure. Well, the first case is a 34-year-old white Latina woman who comes in for an annual visit in primary care and she requests HIV testing because she's recently begun a new relationship with a man who's living with HIV infection. The patient is otherwise very healthy, takes an oral contraceptive pill, and takes no other medications. Would it be appropriate to prescribe PrEP for this patient?
0: How do you make that assessment, doctor?
1: The most important thing is to conduct a comprehensive HIV risk assessment as part of the clinical encounter And ideally, this would be done with non-judgmental language, which can facilitate an honest and comfortable discussion with patients. You can also begin the conversation by asking permission to engage in this sort of risk assessment, given that these are sensitive topics and that can create a nice tone for having these kinds of communications and also assuring the patient that this conversation, just like all the rest of the medical care that you're discussing during the visit, is fully confidential. And so some of these preparatory maneuvers can create a comfortable environment for these discussions.
0: Asking permission, assuring confidentiality, speaking non-judgmentally. Once you've established at least some sort of comfort level, doctor, what are some of the specific things you would ask the patient about?
1: Some of the specifics would include asking about all of the sexual partners that she may have. Just because she mentions that she has a main male partner she's entering a relationship with, some people will have more than one partner, so it's helpful to get a global sense of the types of partnerships that she may be engaging in sexual contacts with. And then it's important to ask about substance use history to see if she may have any injection drug use. That would be another risk factor for HIV acquisition, or if she's having sexual encounters while she is using substances which can impair decision-making around other forms of protection, such as barriers or condom use. It's also important to ask about a history of any sexually transmitted infections she may have had, which can also be a risk factor for HIV acquisition and can also potentiate HIV transmission in terms of some of the biology of having a bacterial sexually transmitted infection or other sexually transmitted infections as well. Then it's important to ask about What kinds of things is she already doing to protect against HIV acquisition, such as whether she's using condoms with this partner or with other partners, or if there are any other strategies that she may have explored? And then digging in a little bit deeper into some of the sexual behaviors that she's having with her partner or partners can also help assess the risk for HIV acquisition. For example, we know that anal sex is one of the more efficient ways that HIV can be transmitted during sexual encounters. Asking about those behaviors as well as vaginal sex and oral sex can give a more comprehensive picture of the type of risk behavior she might be engaging in with her partner. And very important for having a long-term relationship with a male partner who's living with HIV is her partner's HIV treatment history. If that's something that she's aware of, it may not be information that she's privy to depending on the type of communication they have in the partnership. But if he is willing to share that information with her, it can be very helpful to assess the risk of transmission because we know that people who are living with HIV who take HIV treatment and who have a low viral load are much less likely to transmit HIV to their sexual partners. So figuring out what she knows about his adherence to his HIV treatment medication and any levels of viral load testing that he may have recently had can really add to the picture of her risk. And at the end, the idea is to put all of these factors into a calculus to sort out if she's at high enough risk where she may benefit from something like pre-exposure prophylaxis.
0: Baseline testing prior to prescribing PrEP. What might that include?
1: There are a number of tests that the guidelines recommend be performed before initiating PrEP in a patient. versus HIV testing. You want to make sure that your patient is HIV uninfected before starting PrEP because it's not a complete HIV treatment regimen, but rather only part of a full regimen. So, you want to make sure they're uninfected by getting ideally a fourth generation test, which is an antibody antigen test to demonstrate that someone's HIV uninfected. And there is a window period with that sort of testing. So, to make sure that someone isn't HIV infected, but still in the window period where the test would be negative. You also want to assess if they have any symptoms that could be consistent with acute or recent HIV infection. And if you do elicit any of those symptoms, which could be anything from flu-like symptoms to rash or sore throat, anything that could be consistent with acute HIV, then you want to check an HIV RNA test, which is the most sensitive test with the shortest window period before starting PrEP. It's also recommended to assess the patient's creatinine to know their renal function because it's not recommended to use PrEP in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 60 milliliters per minute because tenofovir has been associated with renal harms with long-term use. It's also important to assess the patient's hepatitis B status by checking their serologies. If someone is surface antigen positive, that is, they have chronic active hepatitis B, then it doesn't mean you can't use PrEP But it's important to know their status because the PrEP medications are also active against hepatitis B. So, if someone has chronic active hepatitis B and they use PrEP, you're actually treating their hepatitis B as well as administering PrEP. There's nothing wrong with that, and it may actually be beneficial for their health overall. But it's important to know because if people stop hepatitis B treatment, they can have an abrupt increase in their hepatitis B viremia, which in rare cases can cause hepatic inflammation. So it's just important to know their status, and if a clinician is not comfortable managing hepatitis B, to consult an expert in hepatitis B management when prescribing PrEP. If someone has hepatitis B testing that demonstrates they're susceptible to hepatitis B, then it's good clinical practice to offer them a hepatitis B vaccine. It's also important to check a baseline hepatitis C test as part of general sexual health care, and then if someone could potentially become pregnant to test a pregnancy test, PrEP can be given to people who are intending to become pregnant, could become pregnant, or are pregnant, but the guidelines suggest that there's limited evidence in this population, so it's important to have an informed discussion with women. PrEP and pregnancy.
0: So your patient asks you whether she can safely conceive with her HIV-positive partner. How would you answer her, doctor?
1: We know from research that many HIV steroid discordant couples, that is where one member of the couple has HIV infection and the other member is HIV uninfected, express fertility desires and intentions. Just like anyone else, some people want to have children and people living with HIV or in partnerships with those living with HIV also express these intentions. So it's really a good conversation to have to provide the best quality of care for people in steroid discordant couples. The CDC has some guidelines about the options for these scenarios. And I would assure the patient that there are definitely options that she may consider accessing. The first one is sperm washing, where a sperm from a man living with HIV infection can be washed and cleaned to remove the HIV, and then it can be safely used to inseminate the female partner in the couple. One challenge with sperm washing, even though the risk of HIV transmission is extremely low because the sperm washing is quite effective, is that access could be problematic for some patients. The expertise for conducting the sperm washing is very specialized, and so not all geographic areas will have someone who's expert in doing that. And in terms of expense of the procedure, it may be prohibitive for some patients or at least problematic. So I would definitely counsel that there are other options where people can safely try and conceive children. The number one most important thing is HIV treatment for the HIV-infected partner. As I was mentioning earlier in our discussion if someone's lived with HIV, but they take HIV treatment, it makes it very unlikely they transmit HIV to their partners. So that's one of the strongest interventions where couples can try and conceive children where the person with HIV is on treatment. Using PrEP for the HIV uninfected partner is also a useful tool that can be adjunctive to HIV treatment for the infected partner. And it's not clear how much additional benefit there is in using PrEP if the HIV-infected partner has an undetectable viral load because that's such an effective intervention. But it's certainly something that I think clinicians should offer to patients so that patients can take control of their own sexual health. Also, some patients may not be 100% confident that their sexual partners will be adherent to their HIV treatment. So, their partners could be viremic and they wouldn't know it. That's another reason that discussing and offering PrEP for women such as the case example here, is really important. Couples can also time their condomless intercourse to times of peak fertility in terms of the menstrual cycle. And then at other times when fertility is lower, they can use condoms. That decreases the number of acts that are condomless and therefore where HIV transmission can occur while trying to optimize the chances of a conception event. And finally, screening and treating both partners for any sexually transmitted infections that they may have is also useful because these infections can potentiate HIV transmission.
0: Other populations at high risk for HIV acquisition where PrEP should be considered. Give us an overview, if you would, please, doctor.
1: Well, there are a number of populations for which PrEP is likely to be beneficial and for which clinicians should try and have this discussion. If they're taking care of any men who have sex with men who are engaging in condomless receptive anal intercourse or any anal intercourse, that's a population in which we know that there's a disproportionately high burden of HIV in the community. And so discussions about PrEP are important. Men with sex with men, also known as MSM, who are having sexually transmitted infections diagnosed is another population that may benefit from PrEP. And if they're having sex while under the influence of substances, particularly using crystal methamphetamine, those are also patients where the benefits of PrEP may be high. Other important populations include persons who are using injection drugs, who are sharing needles, or who may be engaging in risky sexual encounters while using substances, because we know that substance use can impair sexual decision-making, and some people may be trading sex for drugs, goods, services, or other things that they need, and so it's a population worth having these conversations. Also, if someone is using injection drugs but is recently entered treatment for their substance use, such as a treatment program or the use of medication-assisted therapy, then this is a population that also may benefit from PrEP conversations because some people who recently start treatment may be at risk for relapse of their substance use and injecting behaviors. And so the CDC guidelines suggest considering PrEP in those who have been entered into a program in the prior six months. Other populations include heterosexuals who may have sexual partners who themselves are engaging in risk behaviors. For example, a woman who is in a relationship with a male partner and her male partner has sex with other men or uses injection drugs, she may be also at risk for HIV acquisition because of her main partner's behaviors and therefore may be an appropriate candidate for PrEP. People who also engage in transactional sex work may be candidates for PrEP. And importantly, keeping in mind the local epidemiology of patients that you may see in care as a clinician can help decide whether or not conversations about PrEP are most helpful. For example, there are some notable racial disparities in terms of HIV epidemiology, with Black and African Americans being at increased risk for HIV acquisition in some communities, particularly young Black men who have sex with men and Latino men who have sex with men experience disproportionately high rates of new infections. So if clinicians can be mindful of that epidemiology and try and provide conversations about PrEP to those patients, that can be giving patients really good quality care. Well, thank you for that case and discussion,
0: doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Douglas Krakauer from Harvard in just a moment. You've been listening to EHIV Review, a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. In each issue, an expert author reviews the current literature in an area of specific importance to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. In the month following each newsletter, the expert author provides a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you're listening to now, to help translate that new information into clinical practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Subscription to eHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. For more information about this educational activity, to subscribe and receive eHIV Review newsletters and podcasts without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this eHIV Review Podcast. We're with Dr. Douglas Krakauer from Harvard Medical School, and we've been discussing how some of the new information presented in his newsletter issue about addressing provider and patient barriers to PrEP can best be translated into clinical practice. So if you would please, doctor, let's continue with another patient scenario.
1: This patient is a 43-year-old white male who engages in active injection drug use in terms of health complications of injecting The patient has been diagnosed with hepatitis C, which has been untreated. The patient had a prior overdose requiring resuscitation and has had multiple skin abscesses. This patient injects heroin and fentanyl. And in terms of other medical issues, has a history of depression and uses an SSRI for this condition with very good adherence, has some challenges with unstable housing as well. Is this patient an appropriate candidate for PrEP? How would you make that assessment? Well, just like the other patients we talked about, you'd want to use non-judgmental language and create a comfortable atmosphere for patients to disclose any drug use and sexual risk behaviors they may be engaging in because this patient population may be fearful of being judged by providers for their drug use behaviors. So that can create an atmosphere where conversations can go well about PrEP. So you start by asking what he's already doing to protect against HIV infection, such as using cleaner sterile needles and needle exchange programs. And then figuring out, if not, if he's sharing needles with partners who may be infected with HIV or other paraphernalia that he may be sharing, which can also increase the risk of HIV acquisition. And in terms of the partners, in terms of injecting drug use and sexual behaviors the patient may be engaging in. you want to ask if he knows anything about their HIV status, which can, of course, put him at higher risk if he knows he's sharing needles with people who are HIV-infected. And as I mentioned before, figuring out if he has any recent entry into a substance abuse treatment program because of the risk of relapse for people who may have recently entered these programs. I also want to ask if a patient's been exchanging sex for money, drugs, goods, housing, or any other things that he may need, which may also increase the chances of engaging in risky behaviors.
0: Let's say that this is a patient who is totally unaware of PrEP. He's never heard of it, never considered the idea. How would you introduce the concept to him?
1: It's a really important question because we know from research that awareness of PrEP among people who are injecting drugs is likely to be quite limited. It can be important to start with an open-ended assessment, such as asking a question, what have you heard about PrEP before today? That way, if people have heard about PrEP, you can get a sense about what they know and any helpful or potentially unhelpful information they may have heard, such as misconceptions about PrEP, so you can address those as part of your conversation. It can be really helpful to ask if it's okay to share information about PrEP because, again, that sets a really nice atmosphere of asking someone's permission to give information about something, and I think it makes people much more receptive to hearing more about PrEP and other things that may be new to them. A great framework for talking about PrEP is informed or shared decision-making. This is the idea where people may not know if PrEP is right for them right off the bat, so it's helpful to provide information that's relevant to them that's personalized to their lives and try and assess their personal values and preferences around the different options they may have for protecting themselves against HIV. Some people may find that taking a daily pill is a really attractive option, whereas other people feel like that would be a huge inconvenience or they're skeptical of medications and it may not be the right time to start something like PrEP. But by assessing their values and preferences, you can move the conversation forward in a helpful individualized way for each patient. Patients probably will have a variety of different levels of health literacy and numeracy. So, it's also helpful to keep in mind how you present information about the benefits or potential harms of treatments such as PrEP, because people may not be as comfortable with numbers and talking about things like efficacy estimates and risk may not be terms that they're familiar with. So, trying to adjust your language can also move the conversation forward in a helpful way. And finally, informed decision-making as a framework would suggest if you can conclude with a patient-centered decision that works with where they are in their life at the time of the encounter, that's probably going to be the best way to build trust in a helpful relationship. And even if you think PrEP is something that might be really of great benefit for them and they decline it today, if you try and keep it in a patient-centered manner, building that relationship will pay off dividends in the long run because they'll feel comfortable coming back to you. And over time, You may be able to move them in the direction that you think is best for their health, which may include PrEP. The
0: research reviewed in your newsletter discussed some of the barriers clinicians themselves might have to prescribing PrEP. Talk to us now about patient barriers to accepting PrEP, particularly among patients, like this one, who are injection drug users.
1: There are a number of challenges that are really important to keep in mind. There may be psychosocial challenges that patients face in terms of their substance use, co-occurring mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, all of these things can make it challenging for someone to adhere to a prophylactic medication such as PrEP. It is important to keep in mind that we shouldn't make assumptions as clinicians about adherence early on before a patient has given things a try because research has shown that clinicians may not be able to accurately predict which patients are actually going to be good or not as good at adhering to long-term medications. So, giving people the benefit of the doubt is something that's important in providing good quality care. It's important to engage in a personalized assessment of adherence barriers because different people who are using drugs, even though they may be members of the same population with respect to their risk behaviors, may have very different experiences in terms of the social milieu in which they live, and which they need to address taking a daily medication such as PrEP. So coming up with a personalized assessment of barriers, is a good way to give individualized counseling that can move things forward in terms of personalized strategies to optimize adherence. Another important barrier that may come up is people who are using injection drugs who may be in treatment programs or using medication-assisted therapies such as buprenorphine or other medications to work on their substance abuse may have questions about whether or not the medication for PrEP, tenofovir interacts with those medications clinicians who have not prescribed PrEP concomitant with these medications may also have those questions. The good news is that this medication for PrEP does not have any interactions with the currently used medications for substance abuse management with opioid disorders, and that can make it a little bit easier to prescribe PrEP in this population. Some good points,
0: Dr. Krakauer. Thank you. I think we've got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would please, doctor.
1: This patient is a 21-year-old black man who has sex with men who was recently diagnosed and treated for rectal chlamydia and otherwise is healthy without any medications or medical issues. Again, my first question is, how would you assess if this
0: patient is an appropriate candidate for PrEP?
1: I'll emphasize again engaging in a comprehensive non-judgmental risk assessment. This can include assessing the number of partners that he may be having sex with, any condom use behaviors and any anal sex behaviors, including insertive or receptive anal sex behaviors. We also want to ask about substance use, such as crystal methamphetamine, poppers, or other substances, because studies have shown that use of some of these substances can increase sexual risk and also HIV incidence. It's important to ask about the HIV status of their sexual partners. It can be helpful to ask the patient where he meets his partners, such as using online dating apps. Some people may engage in anonymous sexual encounters, which may increase their risk if they don't have conversations about their partner's HIV testing status. Any history of sexually transmitted infections, particularly bacterial sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, we know that those are associated with incident HIV infection as well, and people have used the term syndemics to talk about syphilis and HIV, where these two epidemics are synergistic with each other in an unfortunately negative way, that they increase the risk of acquiring the other infection. It's also helpful to keep in mind some of the racial disparities I mentioned earlier, where young Black MSM have a very high burden as a community of HIV infection. Part of this may be due to structural stigma, where these young men may have less likelihood of accessing culturally competent health care, They may face healthcare provider-related stigma and may not have the same willingness to engage in healthcare because of mistrust of their providers. So they may be less likely to have HIV and STD testing. Assessing the HIV prevalence in someone's sexual network is also helpful. If someone's engaging in sexual encounters in a community where HIV prevalence is very high, such as in some urban centers, that may also increase the risk of HIV acquisition and the potential benefits of PrEP. It's really important to note If a patient mentions that they have very low-risk behaviors, but they still request PrEP, that clinicians should not withhold PrEP or dismiss their concerns because some patients may not feel comfortable disclosing sensitive information to their providers for fear of being judged. And so patients may still be engaging in risk behaviors. If someone requests PrEP, my recommendation would be to strongly consider offering it and not to withhold it for that reason.
0: Are there tools available to help clinicians assess whether or not a particular individual might be an appropriate candidate for PrEP?
1: There are a number of tools that are available. The CDC guidelines recommend for MSM using a risk screening tool called the HIRI MSM, which is a seven-question tool in which a clinician can ask patients a number of questions about their sexual and drug use behaviors and come out with a, a rough sense about whether a conversation about PrEP may be warranted. There are other tools that have been developed in a similar vein with other populations, such as MSM in San Diego. There was a tool called the SDET that was developed in that population. There's another tool that was developed in the University of Washington that was looking at a risk prediction tool for MSM presenting to sexual health clinics in the Seattle region. And there are a couple of other online tools. So these can be a way to come up with a handy risk assessment that can be done at the point of care. An important thing to keep in mind, though, is that all these tools may lack sensitivity and specificity, so they shouldn't be used as a definitive answer about whether someone should or should not use PrEP, but really as one component of a comprehensive risk assessment that draws upon all the information and the patient preferences that would have been elicited earlier in the conversation.
0: And how would you counsel this patient about condom use while undergoing
1: PrEP? The CDC guidelines recommend that the best protection against HIV acquisition is use of condoms plus PrEP. We know that not all patients use condoms correctly and consistently and studies suggest that many patients who use PrEP do not change their condom use behaviors. People have worried that the use of PrEP will create an environment where people who were using condoms abandon those while using PrEP. and That's also known as behavioral disinhibition or risk compensation. But most of the studies show that people who have started using PrEP We're not using condoms consistently beforehand and don't use them consistently after. So just because someone isn't using condoms is not a reason to withhold PrEP or to discontinue their PrEP. Some studies have shown a minority of people who do disclose they're using condoms less after starting PrEP, but PrEP is highly protective if people use it consistently. So my recommendation would be that it's not a reason to withhold PrEP from someone if they disclose they're using condoms less but in fact may be a reason to encourage them to be adherent to PrEP to get high level of protection from the medications. It's important to note that sexually transmitted infection rates such as chlamydia, syphilis, and gonorrhea are at an all-time high in the U.S., as reported recently by the CDC. So clinicians should ideally incorporate counseling about condoms and other ways to protect against other sexually transmitted infection in all their patients who may be using PrEP. This can include frequent screening tests, and treatment for STIs as part of comprehensive PrEP care. PrEP in its current form is dosed daily.
0: Now, if a patient, for whatever reason, doesn't want to use a daily dose, are there other options?
1: Currently, the only option recommended by the CDC and approved by the FDA is daily oral tenofovir emtricitabine in the United States. There have been studies looking at whether an on-demand regimen, that is where people take PrEP only right before they engage in sexual risk behaviors, and then for a short period of time after, is something that may be efficacious. There was a study called the Epergay study, which looked at this strategy where MSM would use a double dose of the tenofovir emtricitabine tablets the day before or the day of a sexual encounter, and then they would use another dose on a daily basis for two days thereafter. And this has been shown to be highly efficacious in the Ipurgay study. The only challenge with those data are that the average number of pills taken per month by the men in the study was about 15 because they were engaging in frequent sexual encounters. And other studies of daily PrEP where people were less than adherent, but they were taking about 15 pills a month showed that that was still very highly protective. So this leaves us in a situation where we don't really know if someone's engaging in fewer sexual encounters and using fewer PrEP pills each month in this on-demand strategy, if they'll actually get high levels of benefit. There were a few participants in the Ypresgate study who did actually use fewer number of pills and they had less frequent encounters and there are some preliminary data suggesting they still got high levels of protection, but it hasn't been clearly established, and this is only one study. And therefore, currently, it can only be recommended to use daily oral PrEP until we receive further guidance from the CDC or the FDA. There are, in the future, hopefully going to be more options for PrEP, and there are a number of investigational agents that are being tested in clinical trials, such as injectable PrEP, where people can have a long-acting depot injection of PrEP, maybe once every two months or so. There are also intravaginal rings that are being studied as well as topical gels containing antiretrovirals to be used as PrEP. So hopefully the future will come up with a whole variety of options that can fit each patient's preference.
0: Thank you for your insight into today's cases, Dr. Krakauer. Let's wrap things up by reviewing our discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the priority populations where PrEP is likely to have the greatest impact
1: We reviewed case examples of patients with indications for PrEP from several major priority populations, including men who have sex with men, in particular a young minority, men who have sex with men, persons who inject drugs, and heterosexuals with HIV-infected partners. Those would comprise the highest-risk populations who may be most likely to benefit from PrEP use. And our second learning
0: objective, how to help at-risk patients with limited awareness of PrEP make informed decisions
1: about accepting PrEP. We talked about coming up with open-ended assessments of patients' knowledge and interest in using PrEP for people at risk for HIV acquisition, trying to discuss the risks and benefits in PrEP in a manner that is appropriate for patients' health literacy and numeracy on an individualized basis, and using a patient-centered framework for discussions and decision-making about PrEP. These are the strategies that can help a patient with informed decision-making about PrEP.
0: And our final learning objective, developing an unbiased approach to prescribing decisions about offering PrEP.
1: So we talked about engaging in non-judgmental assessments of each patient's personal risk behaviors and considering these personal behaviors in the context of the epidemiology for important patient populations. We talked about engaging in patient-centered decision-making as well as considering that some patients may not be comfortable disclosing their sensitive behaviors, such as personal risk behaviors, to their clinicians. We also talked about how clinicians should ideally not withhold PrEP from persons who request PrEP because those patients may be uncomfortable disclosing high-risk behaviors to their clinicians.
0: Dr. Douglas Krakauer from Harvard Medical School, thank you for participating in this
1: EHIV Review Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure.
0: To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eHIV Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit. eHIV Review is emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, the ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eHIV Review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Veve Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.